grace and peace, y'all doing all right? Good, good, good. See, I actually got a response. We, we, we get it. We are getting there. Awesome. It is um, good to be with you. I am Jonah. Um, I am uh, the pastoral fellow here at Salem Press. Um, just a fancy word for, of course, the old man intern. Um, but uh, that's who I am. Um, just, uh, of course, a, a quick update. Of course, last week my family was away um, at RUF assessment, and I uh, just want to let you know it went extremely well. Uh, we have been approved by RUF. So just uh, continue to pray for us. Um, I do want to let you know, just to be prepared, the accounts will be open in the next couple weeks. Amen. So we've been praying, but now it's time to put that faith to action. All right. So, um, and I'm just thank you. I know we're going to do great. Um, so, a couple of weeks ago, Ben and I um, got invited down to uh, to a Black History Month celebration at Southeastern. Of course, it is the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary down in the Raleigh area. And uh, as you can imagine, as a Black man getting an invitation to a Black History Month celebration at a Southern Baptist Seminary. Mm, that just sounded like a bad idea. <laughs> just, that was not going to be good. Um, but, but we heard, though, that the event was, uh, the keynote speaker for the event was going to be Dr. Carl Ellis. And if that's not a name that you're familiar with, uh, it should be, especially during Black History Month. Because Dr. Carl Ellis was the first minority, the black man, to ever be ordained by the PCA. So he himself is black history for us. Um, and so he was speaking um, at, at this event, and he was speaking in regards to African Americans and the work of missions. And, and that's something even I was like, black folks and missions, like I hadn't even really heard anything about this, but there's been a great deal of work for years and years uh, to see the continent of Africa evangelized and but there was a great deal of work that would be done by these African Americans, but we had never heard of it. Partially for a couple different reasons. Um, that there was the development of missions agencies. And these missions agencies came and essentially worked to eradicate the work that had been done for years and years by these black missionaries. And it, that came um, as a result of believing two things. One, they didn't think that black people were most effective in witnessing to other black people. The second thing is that they believe, hey, we have the money to do it, so we're going to be better at it. I share this, though, because as we were returning, Ben asked me a question that I hope that we can uh, get some clarity on. The question was, who did I think were three of the most important black preachers in history? And I can promise you that that list did not include T.D. Jakes or Dollar Dollar Bill, y'all Creflo Dollar. But um, in fact, I believe that they are on the, some other lists that we can maybe call heretics or us. Um, <laughs> But today, I want you to know that I stand as an ambassador of the one true and living God. 
as a communicator of his gospel, uniquely called to expound upon the Holy Scriptures. Yet in the words of Maya Angelou, I also come bringing the gifts of my ancestors that I am the dream and hope of a slave. She wrote in the poem, Still I Rise. See, I stand before you in the lineage of great godly men who have endured hardship, years of oppression, whose homes and churches were burned, wives and daughters brutally raped and beaten, whose sons were hung from trees, yet Sunday after Sunday they stood in pulpits and churches across this country proclaiming the good news of the gospel. I stand before you in the lineage of Lemuel Hayes. We see a quote from him on the cover of our bulletin today. He was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who in November 1780 became the first African-American to be ordained for ministry in America by any religious body. Lemuel Hayes was a pastor of a church in New England. He served for more than 30 years. He grew the church at from 42 members to over 300 members within that 30-year period. And you would think with this type of experience that his only function in the church would go beyond just preaching. In fact, it didn't. He was more of a puppet for most of his ministry because they didn't believe that a black man could have pastoral authority over white men. I stand before you in the lineage of Bishop Richard Allen, who was a pastor by day and conductor on the Underground Railroad at night, who founded the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a denomination that literally formed from him being drugged from the altar of St. George's in Philadelphia that led him to establish a new church because he believed he too was created in the image of God. I stand before you in the lineage of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Named for the Protestant reformer, Dr. King's vision of America sought to see the unity of the body of Christ in the scriptures become the practice of the world in which we live. Lastly, I stand before you in the lineage of Dr. Paul Ellis and Y. Plummer, Mike Higgins, Kevin Smith, Leon Brown, Howard Brown, Charles McKnight, is just a few of only 53 black men in the PCA who lead our churches. What a rich lineage that is. And I'm thankful for this opportunity to celebrate this Black History Month with you to share with you the vantage point that gives context for the resilience and the resistance of the people around the world whose heritage makes them a part of the black diaspora. That we have chosen to not know history as only a single story, but to hear the truths of my story from me as your covenant brother that we will see as a church and as a community an inheritance of every human being, that we would suspend the preconceived notions 
to experience something afresh. That together you and I will tell the story that is rooted in the gospel, yet drenched in our rich heritage. That we would espouse our values, that we would reflect deeply upon our past, yet together be imaginative of what is to come because of the great hope that we have in Jesus. Amen. 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 Let's get into the text. Today's passage, I know for many of you from a church background, is something that is pretty familiar. Yet, it comes from John's Gospel, which is written in this really simple style, yet it establishes a theological profundity that is far beyond the synoptics, which is the first three Gospels before it. John was written at the close of the first century from the city called Ephesus in Asia Minor. John's Gospel is written as an eyewitness account, though, uh, and we see this in some really very clear details. I mean, he does this like with the use of numbers. We see uh, he says six water jars or three to four miles, 100 yards, specifically 153 fish or specific names like Lazarus and Nicodemus or Malchus in, in chapter 18. These are just some really vivid touches on only someone who was an eyewitness would have experienced. These details are important because they help us to substantiate the early church's tradition of the apostolic authority of the text, but they also represent a trustworthy historical tradition. John, the author of the gospel, is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved, which is cool because we're learning from someone who Jesus himself confided in. If, if I can, though, I want to introduce to you uh, a, a new term that's pretty important, I think, in reflecting on John's gospel. The term is Christological. Christological. It's like terms like theological or biological has the same root meaning that leads us to the study of Christ, whom we as Christians purport to be Jesus. I mention this because we as a church want to be a safe place to explore the truth claims of Christ. And so I want you to, 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 to know that while this is what we as Christians believe, um, if you have questions about that, I want to be able to discuss those with you. But Christological in context highlights the deity of Jesus. That Jesus is more than mere man, though he is fully man, but also that he is also full deity. That Jesus is the unique, pre-existent Son of God who, in obedience to God the Father, uh, took on humanity so that he could die sacrificially for the salvation of others. John does this great job of showing us that Jesus is really human. He does this through giving us these demonstrations like how the Word became flesh or how that Jesus had moments when he became tired and thirsty. He talks about Jesus' physical death and how Jesus physically rose again. These are all a part of John's Christological perspective of who Jesus is. But Jesus, Jesus also demands that we take this Christological look at who he is. He does this through the seven I am statements that we've been talking about through our study of John. He says in, in 635 that I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he also says that I am the true vine. Each of these claims, however, are essentially connected to the Old Testament for God's calling himself the great I am, or Yahweh. John writes this with this really clear intention to show us that through the use of the signs and Jesus himself revealing who he is, that we have the Messiah's ultimate fulfillment. Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage of scripture, verses 17 through 27, he writes something that I think is helpful here. He says, here was a house where the fear of God was and on which his blessing rested Yet it was made a house of mourning. Grace will keep sorrow from the heart, but not from the house. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like my experience. Jesus is arriving at this point where Lazarus has been dead and entombed for four days. The family lived in Bethany and people were coming from about two miles away in Jerusalem to be with them. The travel, though, the travel that people took uh, is believed to, to, to represent uh, that this family probably has some prominence in society. So the comfort that the people were coming to show was, was in all likelihood a part of their religious and social responsibility. Four days is an important detail, though, because when we look at Jewish tradition, uh, three days, they believe something pretty weird. They believe that three days um, that after this, in this period of three days, that the spirit would hover above the body, waiting for something to happen. And eventually, after the three days, they would essentially cut their losses and move on. It may come as a surprise, though, because of how much we talk as Christians about resurrection, how rare this is as an occurrence in Scripture. In fact, of the four Gospels combined, there's only three instances of resurrection. There's the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. There's the raising of the widow's son in, in Nain in Luke 11. And here is the raising of Lazarus in John 11. The raising of Lazarus here is far more spectacular than the others. For Jesus, the raising of Lazarus is both a private and personal experience, yet there's this public dimension of it because we see like Big Brother, the Jews are always watching it. So looking at verse 17 through 27 is, is really uh, picking up the story of Lazarus in kind of what is the middle of the story. So let me help you kind of get to this point. We see in, in verses 1 through 16 that John is establishing essentially a preamble that, that sets the scene that it, with some added drama. It's like a, a Shonda Rhimes scandalous show where we see that Jesus is intentionally waiting another two days before he departs for Bethany. He knows that his friend needs him, but he chooses to stay. It's interesting because John writes, obviously assuming that his reader has some prior biblical knowledge. 
So Jesus responds in divine omniscience that Lazarus' sickness is not about death, but intended for the glory of God. So Jesus continues to stay for two days. He is indulged by the disciples' reminder, these dudes, you go back, they want to kill you. Despite how cynical they were, Jesus is like, all right, it's time to go. So get this, Jesus, he stays his additional two days, meant that, that when he had arrived, it was past the point that Lazarus' spirit would have been there. So Jesus, if he had not stayed this additional time, would have, would have arrived in time to do a miracle, but, but even for Jesus, he was too late. Jesus' stay for an additional two days was a challenge to their faith. Lazarus has these two sisters, but we see only one of them even has the faith to go out and meet Jesus. And she says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. See, she had the faith to believe that Jesus could keep Lazarus from death, but not necessarily the faith to see that Jesus could raise her brother from the dead. Yet, in Jesus, the resurrection and life itself had come. Uh, she goes on to give, though, at the end of the passage, the most complete Christological confession of the entire gospel, saying, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Yet, verse 23 before that is, without question, uh, some planned ambiguity. Jesus gives this response. He says, your brother will rise again. That, that could be taken a couple different ways. One, um, it could be taken to imply, as most of us would intend to think, that Jesus is simply giving the devout, orthodox solace um, that there will be a day at the end of time when the dead would be raised. But the reality is that Jesus means something much deeper. That Jesus is promising a more immediate resurrection. Jesus taught in death about the resurrection because he understood himself to be the very resurrection. Jesus is calling us to divert our attention away from death itself, that abstract reality, so that we can see him alone who is resurrection and life. Jesus comes because he not only gives bread from heaven, but because he himself is the very bread of life. So Jesus comes to not only raise the dead, but is in himself this very resurrection and the life, and there is no resurrection and no life outside of Jesus. For Jesus to ask if she believes this is to ask her to be go beyond the faith of a simple last day resurrection, but to step into a faith of personal trust in Jesus, that only he can give eternal life and transformative resurrection. Her yes, Lord, is more than a confession that she believes Jesus to be true, but rather to truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God, a paradigm shift 
in her own life that is not merely pious or distracted, but submissive to the truth of God himself. This is Black History Month. So if you don't mind, I want to close this message the way that we would in the church where I grew up. In the words of the Reverend S.M. Lockridge, he would describe Jesus a little something like this. He says, he says, my king was born a king. He says that the Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews, that he's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. That He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords because that's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? Do you know him? Don't mislead me. Do you know my king? Uh, David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there is no means of measure that can define his limitless love. Far-seeing telescope that can bring into visibility uh, the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's the highest personality and philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion because that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only way. He's the only thing that can supply our needs. He supplies strength for the weak. He's able for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He's available to the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves over and over. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all of his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He regards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek because that's my king. Let me ask you, do you know him? Because that's my king, a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him for you, but he's indescribable. 
vast. My king is incomprehensible. He's inconceivable. He's irresistible. I'm coming to tell you this, that the heavens, the heavens can't contain him, let alone man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him out of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. He's the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him and death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him because that's my king. He always has and always will be king. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. That there's nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. You can impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. He is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Y'all be blessed.